to the sermon podcast of Trinity Church in Carryville, Tennessee, right outside of Memphis. For more information about our church, please visit our website, trinity901.com. So a few years ago, my son, John Hunter, was unwell, and we could not figure out what was wrong with him. We thought that it might be food allergies. We thought that it might be lactose intolerance, an allergy to milk. We did not know, and it kept getting worse, and he was in pain. And so we were very fortunate to find a pediatric GI that was able to identify that he had celiac disease. That is a um, that is a the right way to say that would be gluten acts as a poison in his system and affects him very significantly. And so as we were given this diagnosis, we met with the doctors and they began to talk to us about how gluten affects him, what celiacs does to his body. And as we listened to them and we listened to the nurse, nurses and as we explored this condition online, we began to discover that there are many rules, that there are many things that we should do as a family to avoid giving him gluten or poisoning his system and making him sick. Now, there is a long list of what we should do and what we should not do, but I will give you two that are quite simple to understand. But sometimes in the context of a family, very challenging. So we go to great lengths, we go to great extremes to never drink after him because we have gluten in our systems. And sometimes it's very difficult to see a cup, to see John Hunter eating, and he has his own cup, and he has a drink, and I'm walking by, and I just want to grab it and take a sip and keep walking. It's just what you do in a family. When we're in the car riding somewhere together, and he has a drink, and I'm thirsty, I want to grab it and take a sip and put it back down. But we can't do that because we might introduce gluten into his system and make him very sick. Another very simple thing that we do, a rule that we follow as a family. We have our own toaster, and John Hunter has his own special toaster. And we never use his toaster because everything that goes in there are gluten-free products. Whereas our toaster is lovingly filled with gluten, probably the right way to, wrong way to say it, but... We're putting bread that's not gluten-free in there on a very constant basis. Now, why do we follow these rules? Don't we kind of want to be rebellious sometimes? And the answer is no. We want to let these rules, these laws, if you will, guide us and direct us in order to protect Him. We pay attention to them because we love our son and we know that it is best for him. All of these rules, all of these things that we seek to follow are helpful and they keep John Hunter safe and they keep him healthy. And so we've come to 1 Timothy this morning. And this is Paul telling Timothy and the church in Ephesus that God's laws are good and they are helpful and they are important. 
these laws that we are going to see in verses 8 through 11 are a reminder of a son who loves us and obeys these laws to the point of death. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the goodness and the truth of your word. Father, help us to understand how much you love us. Help us to see and to know and to grasp the love that the Son has for us and the obedience that he undertook in obeying the law for us, all made motivated by his love for you and your love for us. Us. Give, give us a deeper and a fuller understanding and appreciation of your laws this day. Father, forgive this lawbreaker. Forgive this sinner, for my sins are great. Set me aside as you speak this morning. Amen. So as I mentioned last week, in case you weren't here, we began a study of 1 Timothy. When we do this, I like to take the first couple of weeks and do a who, what, when, where, and why. I think it will help you as we navigate through this, this pastoral letter in the New Testament. It will help you better understand Paul and Timothy and what's going on in the church of Ephesus. So let's begin with the who. This is written by the Apostle Paul. It is instruction to his spiritual son, Timothy. What are we reading? Well, first and foremost, it is a pastoral letter. It is personal from Paul, who is mentoring Timothy. Here are my words of wisdom to my spiritual son, who I have sent to this church to be a pastor and to help this congregation that is in need. It is also a church planter writing a letter to a church plant. Remember, Paul is the one who established the church in Ephesus. And we see at the end of Timothy that he uses a plural word to indicate that this letter is not only for Timothy, but it is also for the rest of you. And then thirdly, this letter is an apostolic charge to the New Testament church. There are general things that the church needs to understand from Paul as he has been given instruction and wisdom and guidance from the Holy Spirit. This will help New Testament Christian believers in the early church and today. When? This was written after Paul's first imprisonment, so in the early 60s A.D. Where? To the church in Ephesus. Paul has started this church, as I mentioned previously. This was on his second, I'm not going to say missionary journey, I'm going to say his second church planting journey. I think that's a good, a good word. You will see in your study Bibles, missionary journeys, I would argue that they are church planting journeys. And there were three of them for the Apostle Paul. So Ephesus is a major port city in the ancient Middle East. And while Paul is in Ephesus starting this church, he also writes 1 Corinthians. On Paul's trip to Jerusalem that you read about in Acts 20, he meets with the Ephesian elders and notice this. He warns them about false teachers. So what is Paul doing a decade later? He's sending Timothy to Ephesus 
and he's writing a letter to him because there are what? Drum roll, please. False teachers. Why? I just said it. There are men of Jewish origin who are using the genealogies in the Bible and the law to make extra biblical statements that are untrue and they are unwise. They are perhaps legalistic. They may even be arguing for perfectionism. Second Timothy, the second letter that Paul writes to Timothy, gives us a hint that this false teaching is leading to the idea that believers are already resurrected. They have attained a higher spiritual state. So Paul sees the problems and the issues in the church that he has planted, and it's serious, and he needs to address it pronto, via letter, via Timothy. And so we come to verses 8 through 11. Paul is telling Timothy, he is telling the church in Ephesus, he is telling the early church, he is telling us that the law of God is good and it has a purpose. It should not be used for speculation. It should not be used for false reasons. We must understand what the law is for. We must have sound doctrine. So I think it's an important word for us as a church plant, as a new body of believers, a new church family that's moving in the direction of identifying and training and electing our own elders, that Paul is telling us, what do we, what do we take from this? That sound doctrine is significant in the life of this church and in the men that will be called to be elders here at Trinity. It was a long process that I went through to become ordained as a teaching elder in our denomination. Years of study, it was challenging, it was difficult. The presbytery wanted to make sure that I have what? Sound doctrine. That I am teaching the Bible correctly. That this is important, this is significant, this is not what a group of elders in the PCA think. This is what Paul thinks. Sound doctrine. Rightness of teaching. So in verses 8 through 11, you're going to notice that Paul mentions these horrible, terrible, sinful acts. This is seven, he mentions seven of the Ten Commandments. He's giving you the worst of the worst in his opinion. There, scholars do believe that there is some connection with the sins that he is mentioning. As I said, seven of the Ten Commandments and its correlation with Roman law at the time in which he wrote and so Paul is trying to remind his audience that God's law has a real stated purpose and that we should take it seriously. And so when I mention the law of God, I'm not specifically referring to the Ten Commandments. I am meaning more than just the 613 laws of Moses in the Old Testament. I am meaning the entirety of God's instruction, old and new. So one of the things that I appreciate about belonging to the Reformed tradition, one of the things that I appreciate 
about covenant theology is our stress on the significance of the law of God for His covenant people. There was a time in my life many, many, many years ago when I probably would have told you that the Old Testament was for Israel and it wasn't applicable to us, it had no meaning for us, and that the New Testament was for God's people today. But as I came to this understanding of the Reformed tradition of Reformed Reformed theology, It was incredible and it was awesome to understand that the Word of God, both old and new, is one unfolding redemptive story of God's rescue mission and His love affair with His people. He is faithful, He is steadfast, He is good, and He has been doing this from the beginning of time, redeeming a people unto Himself. And that this story is found both in the old and in the new. Just like you find Jesus in the old and Jesus in the new. And so God's word, God's law is applicable to his people. All of it. And so we have to carefully navigate the Old Testament and the New Testament. We have to wrestle with the text in order to understand what it means for me. And so I want to help bring that to light before we before we talk about the three uses of the law. I want to mention the divisions of the law. I think this will help you understand the the Bible, the redemptive message that we see in scripture that there are divisions regarding the law. This was a principle that that was made very clear and and promoted as a result of the Protestant Reformation. But we see it in the writings of Thomas Aquinas in 1270 AD, but it even goes back as early as Augustine and even the early church father, Justin Martyr, who was a Christian apologist and philosopher. What the Reformers and Aquinas and Augustine and Justin Martyr were all trying to tell us is that you interpret the Bible based on the moral, ceremonial, and judicial laws. That this is critical for you to come to a full grasp of what the Lord is saying to you. And so the moral division of the law regards our perpetual duties to God and to neighbor. That as we swim through scripture, as we journey through the word of God, that we need to come to an understanding that the moral law is still in effect for us. That what is our duty towards the Father and to the Son and the Holy Spirit? And what is our duty to our neighbor? And these laws are seen in both the old and the new. But you also have ceremonial laws. And these are laws that governed worship for the nation of Israel. And these laws are no longer applicable to us. And so when you see things in the Old Testament about how it is sinful to intertwine certain threads, you look at that and you interpret that in light of the ceremonial law. That was for Israel. It's no longer for us. It's no longer binding. It is not a law. Am I called to love my neighbor? Absolutely. That is a moral law that was both for Israel and it is for us. There is a third division of the law and that is judicial. 
judicial laws that govern political life in the nation of Israel. They are not binding for us. They are not significant for us. Now, we want to understand the ceremonial and judicial laws because it helps us to better understand Israel and it helps us better understand Jesus, who is the final priest, the final king. He is the one true Israelite. It gives us a greater understanding, but not applicable for us. So when we come to the Word of God, we look for these divisions in order to understand the law. I think it's important to note this because in our culture you will often hear non-Christian people make arguments against Christianity and they will often go and they will use references particularly from the Old Testament to say, oh, the Word of God is antiquated, it is unusual, you... Why do you believe this? And it undermines, it undercuts what you are trying to say in terms of the Word of God and in terms of the law. We need to know these divisions because we need to understand how to respond to them and say, no, 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 that is a ceremonial law or that is a judicial law that belonged to Israel and is no longer functioning today. Sound doctrine is so significant, we need to know it, we need to understand it, we need to believe it, we need to allow it to guide our thinking and our life. It has consequences that affects us spiritually and in the world in which we live, the world that we are trying to navigate that is against us, that is post-Christian. So the divisions of the law, moral, ceremonial, judicial. But then we also see three uses of the law. Now I know this, is, this sounds like a seminary lecture, but I think it's important for us to grasp what is being communicated to us in 1 Timothy. The three uses of the law. This was an important principle that came out of the Protestant Reformation. Scholars like Luther and Calvin They're trying to help us to understand how the law guides us and directs us. And so we're going to walk briefly through the three uses of the law. And we're going to begin with number three and work our way towards number one. The third use of the law is the normative. The normative. In other words, God's word, his teachings, his law instructs us regarding what? Holiness. That we come to the Word of God when we read in the Psalms and we read in 1 Timothy and we read in Genesis and we see the laws before us. God has given us these laws as instruction for how we should live, how we can be pious. Here, 1 Peter 1 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The Lord desires for his people to be holy. And he has given us his word 
to help us understand what it means to walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, to live like Him. Because when we are holy, when we live like Christ, it sends a message to the world that we perhaps are different because we have been radically changed and transformed by grace. And so we want to be holy as He is holy. And then in the words of Jesus Himself, when they bring the woman who's caught in adultery before Him and He forgives her, what does He say to her? What's the last thing He says? Go and sin no more. Jesus wants us to live holy lives. Yes, He understands fully that we live in a fallen world. He understands until the kingdom comes that we will not be made perfect, that we will not be total until we see Him face to face. It's challenging. It's hard. But we should live for Him. And His Word tells us how to live. And that when we live for Christ, God receives all the glory. That is the normative use of the law. It tells us what to do in order to please Him and follow Him. This is the the purpose, the strength of the law. Second use of the law is creational. God's law is revealed in creation. It is on the hearts and the minds of men, whether believers or unbelievers. Paul says in Romans, he's writing a letter to the church in Rome. Just like in Timothy, he's writing to a letter to the church in Ephesus. And here's what he says. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternity, eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. In other words, God's law is clear to humanity that there are things that we should not do. It is impressed upon all of us. That is another function of the law. And then finally, the first use of the law, working our way from back to front, is pedagogical. This is a, this is, in preparing for this this week and studying this this week, you come to this, you come to this understanding of the law as a harsh teacher, as a pedagogical instrument, it's the microphone, not me, that what the law does is that we, we approach it is telling us that we are sinful and that we are unholy and that we do not live up to God's standard. We are so far off. We are so far off. Many years ago when Julio Jones, one of the greatest receivers in the history of the NFL, played at Alabama, I had the opportunity to go onto the field, and there were some recruits, high school recruits, and they were watching him warm up. And these young men, um, I had talked to the coach, and just he had just briefly mentioned that they were 
probably not Division I athletes, that more than likely they were Division II, Division I AA. And Julio Jones came up to introduce himself to them. And as I was observing this interaction, it was incredible to see his power and his strength and his athleticism and how big of a man he was and the size of his hands and that he was the best receiver in college football and these young boys in 10th and 11th grade. God love them. They didn't measure up. They weren't even close. You could just tell by looking at them that this was a future Hall of Famer, pro athlete, and they were just good athletes. And that's what the law does when it approaches us. The law makes us shrink. The law reminds us that we are imperfect, that we are rebellious, that we are unruly, that we cannot obey the Ten Commandments, let alone the other laws that we see in the Word of God. That we need help. And that's where we are reminded of Jesus. The law leads us to the cross. Romans 6, 14 through 15. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. By no means. The law brings us to Jesus. The law helps us to understand His perfection, His holiness, His obedience, His goodness, His mercy, His willingness to leave the throne of grace, to take on flesh, to enter this fallen world, to give his life for us, and to obey the law perfectly. That's who Jesus is, and that is what he has done for you. And what motivates this? His love for the Father and the Father's love for us. Take that to heart. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for your word, which is a guide for your people. Help us to understand it well so that we may worship you. Help us to understand it so that we may be holy and we may live a life pleasing to you. Bring us to your law, God, over and over again so that we may see all the many ways in which we do not add up and all the many ways in which your Son does. Thank you that he has given his life for us, that he has obeyed your law perfectly. It's in his name we pray. Amen.